Welcome, everyone, to the Radiant Others Klesmer podcast. If anyone listening doesn't happen to know me, I'm Dan Blacksburg, and I'm recording from Philadelphia. I've been making the Radiant Others podcast since 2017 and sharing wide-ranging and freewheeling conversations with my friends, peers, mentors, elders, and other brilliant people who make up our global Klezmer and Yiddish worlds. In the time since I was last putting out episodes, a lot has happened in our corner of music and Jewish life. Actually, it all started with absolutely nothing happening because of the pandemic, but in the last three years, a whole ton of new people, new bands, and new music has virtually exploded, both in terms of literally and also virtually as in being streamed online, onto our scene. This is the first of our new series of regular episodes, which is going to focus on some of this new and awesome work. And this first one is a great one. Today, I'll be talking with Zwei Brieder. Zwei Brieder is vocalist Anthony Mordechai Zvi Russell and accordion and pianist Dimitri Gaskin. They've been creating their own brand of Yiddish art songs since 2017 and have been making great work in big waves during that whole time. They have a new album from last summer, Cosmopolitan, which is a genre-bending set of lushly expressive original compositions that set Yiddish poetry from the first half of the 20th century and evoke a world of humor, beauty, oddity, and wistfulness. We get into a lot of great topics in this conversation, like their compositional and collaborative process, how they discovered the text they set, their successes and challenges as a band making new Yiddish art song, and lots more. I had so much fun diving into all these topics with them. Like I said in the teaser for our return, I've brought along Bela Unger as a producer to help me make these episodes regular and even more excellent than ever. A big part of that is getting your help to make our work sustainable. And the way that I'm asking you to do that is to support us on Patreon. Please go to www.patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, dot com slash Radiant Others and give what you can. Our initial fundraising goal is $1,000 a month on Patreon. That will let us put out great conversations to you every two weeks for as long as we can. I want to thank everyone who has already signed up and to a few amazing community members who gave us some seed money to help us get started. And you can always help us out by rating, subscribing, and sharing. Lastly, I'm so grateful that so many of you all let me know over and over what this podcast has meant to you, whether I was able at the time to put out episodes regularly or not. I started making and sharing these conversations to be able to bring to you one of the main ways I was inspired to go deeper into klezmer and Yiddish, being invited into or at least to sit and listen to the deep conversations that the people I admired and look up to were having late at night after an hours-long gig, or a dance party at Klez Camp, or on the subway back to Brooklyn after a rocking concert on the Lower East Side, or over dinner at a festival in Eastern Europe. We musicians and we Jews love to dig in and tell each other what we think, what we wish would come true for us and for our musical world. I'm so glad to be once again sharing these kinds of conversations with all of you. Okay, let's get on to my conversation with Anthony Russell and Dimitri Gaskin. It's Faye All right, so we are doing a recording of the Radiant Others podcast. I kind of can't believe it. It's been a while, and so I'm really excited to be here with Svei Breeder, with Dimitri Gaskin, Anthony Russell. You know them, you love them. Thanks so much for coming on, and it's really great to see both of you. Thank you so much for having us. It's great Thanks to see you, too. Us. Yeah. You know, it's crazy is I'm realizing that I'm able to have this conversation with you without having to steal somebody's seat at a lunch table at Klez Canada in the, <laughs> in the S-Zal, in the dining room. So, um, That's so true. I appreciate it. <laughs> Me too. Yeah. 
Anthony, we actually got to see each other in person in a little bit, but Dimitri, I feel like it's been quite a long time. Yeah. Well, hopefully it'll be shorter until the next time. That's what they say. I love it. I want that too. Yeah. I mean, so I guess, you know, we're getting this podcast rolling again after a while. You know, I've got a really great collaborator in Bela Unger, who's going to be helping doing production. And what we wanted to really start with as we're starting again is just people who have been active during the pandemic in the Yiddish world, people who have produced a lot of things in the Yiddish world. And at least for me, your work is kind of popping out in this moment. But first, before we get to this really awesome album that you released recently, I just want to see how, how are you doing in 2023? Well, hard to believe that it is 2023. Exactly. I'm still It's still 2020. Every time I take a meeting, <laughs> actually, I keep on putting 2022. <laughs> um, so I haven't exactly gotten here yet. Like, you know, I think I think Dimitri, you're right. It still is 2020 to some degree. You know, everything seems to be moving at at a at a very unusual pace, pandemic time, I guess. 2023. Um, <laughs> I know the first why, the, one was fine. Why do we need to have three? Yeah, this does not need sequels. That's for no. sure. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, obviously, I know you both have been busy working and making music and all that stuff. And I know that I think neither of you are active as freelance musicians. But if that's true, I'm, if that's not true, I'm wrong. But how's it been getting back into performing since all this mess? Live performing, I mean. People are hungry for it. Yeah, which is great. And I think people, they're really bringing themselves to to the performances that we've been able to provide for them um, and have been really focused on, on connecting. And we've been really focused focused on connecting with, with our audiences. So it's kind of given us a new lease on, on what we've been doing. That's really cool. And you have definitely been doing a lot. I mean, when did you all start as a as a named project? That's a good question. I'm thinking it's probably fall 2016, maybe. What do you What do you think, Dimitri? I was, was going to say 2017, but I was I was yeah, thinking long enough ago that we don't remember anymore. I mean, I was thinking that like sort of our first collaboration as Fabreeder before Fabreeder really existed was um, Lichtelach, so mm -hmm. our our cover of. Uh, Morris Rosenfeld, a uh, Yiddish song about Hanukkah and um, depression. <laughs> I, I was, had, was that in 2016? I believe that was, that was fall in 2016 yeah. because I, I made a video. I made a video accompanying it and basically I was thinking of it as being sort of a response to the oncoming Trump administration. The words in the last stanza of the song talk about sort of being afraid of the future and not knowing what's going to happen. In that particular case, in the song itself, it was talking about the future of the Jewish people, but um, it was a way for me to sort of explore my feelings, I think the feelings of the country at that particular time. Because it turns out that Jews are not the only people who can be really concerned about what their future is going to look like, <laughs> especially with Trump in the White House, but that's uh, something for a whole other podcast. You know? <laughs> or, Catch or... me on Slate. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> goodness yeah no i mean those were those were the days as they say yeah so you know i want to hear more about how 
you all have developed your work, but like, let's just jump right into it. You have a fairly new album out, right? Yeah. So in was it June or July of last year, we released a Cosmopolitan. Did you, were you holding it up, Anthony? Yes, I just was. Um, we have an album as well as a storybook. I, I have to add, you know, that obviously the album is all in Yiddish. And so for those who aren't fluent like me being not fluent, you can read the storybook, get the uh, the translations, and there's also uh, some wonderful stories written about the, the the pieces and kind of sets them in context. Yes, having been raised very firmly in the uh, CD period, I don't know what the name for that would be, you know, like <laughs> Anthropocene or whatever. But um, yes, I felt I think we both felt very strongly that there should be media accompanying the sounds that we created and we took it as an opportunity to sort of explore what kind of storytelling could happen alongside the storytelling that we do through through our music so yeah i'm very proud of that and uh, thought it was a really great experience working with everyone who helped us put that together yeah i want to hear more about this storybook which i definitely checked out and it is a really cool way of both approaching physical media on its own right like all right you're gonna buy a cd you're actually gonna get something here like let's give you something here to sink your teeth into and then you know i was i was listening to the album which is awesome by the way and i'm thinking like oh i have these questions about these songs and i have the questions about these songs and then i looked at the the storybook and i'm like all right well that answers that question and that answers that question so yeah what was the process of putting that together i know it wasn't just the two of you but you were working with some other people to sort of weave it all into more than just, you know, a back and forth. I think Sway Breeder has been super lucky in that the the sort of unofficial phantom members of Sway Breeder happen to be the very talented members of Dimitri's family who actually oh, helped yeah. us with the logistics around creating this. I mean, if you want to go into, into more detail, Dimitri, they are your family. Sure. So. <laughs> yeah, so I'm going to say... First of all, not, not a member of my family, but somebody I have to credit is Aaron Bendich from Borschbeet, who had the idea to put together a, a, a storybook. Um, or his idea, I think he had a more general idea to put some kind of printed text along with a CD, which I think is really smart because, you know, for those who don't have a CD player, you know, you can still take something home from a concert, something meaningful, and, you know, have, like you're saying, some physical media, some representation uh, of this you can put on your shelf. My, the writer was uh, my mom, who's a, a wonderful writer, and, and um, she interviewed us in depth about all of the songs and you know about the project in general, and she did a lot of her own research. She had a couple of moments, actually, of disagreement with us or with <laughs> other people involved with the album. Okay. Where, you know, she really felt, strongly felt that the song actually meant something different, and, and that's awesome, you know. Uh, it's great to have the variety of opinions and, like, that, you know, these songs are taking a life of their own, even beyond us. And then, you know, it was her idea to sort of frame it as these these dialogues and, and these different people, you know, some of whom are us and some of whom are, you know, other characters. And, you know, it's it's kind of an evolution of this idea of this album in the context of a cafe, which, which we had been toying with for a long time and, and trying to figure out, you know, among other questions, how do you put that into, like, a recorded album? And I think that this this way of presenting it, it was was very effective. It's really interesting because I think the the booklet that uh, we developed to go along with the album 
in some ways went to the very heart of the inspiration of, of what we had for this album. What it ended up being was something that I like to think of as sort of an updated form of a particular kind of writing called a feuilleton. A feuilleton, which is a French, fancy French word, is this kind of turn-of-the-century writing which ultimately sort of gives you a, a sense of a particular time and a place and a conversation that's happening in a, in a particular space. There's actually remnants of the feuilleton that you can experience anytime you pick up a New Yorker. There's a part in the front called Shouts and Murmurs. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you know, in that section, they're usually talking about a particular person while they're in the middle of doing something. It's like they're having a conversation with the interviewer. This form originally sort of came out of the world of the turn of the century cafe. So a lot of people who wrote feuilletons were in cafes, and oftentimes they wrote about the lives of people who they witnessed in cafes. So it's very much sort of a form that's born out of the, the social milieu of, of people who are hanging out in cafes, people who are looking at other people hanging out in cafes, people who are being inspired by hanging out in cafes. And it really is sort of of a piece with, with the, the kind of world of inspiration that we were looking towards in developing this album. This is the point at which I have to mention a really important inspiration for our album, which is this book right here called A Rich Brew, How Cafes Created Modern Jewish Culture by mm. Shachar Pensker. It's just this amazing uh, document of the cafe as this interesting space of of cultural creation and inspiration for people in general living around the the turn of the 20th century but for jews in particular it really being a, a very serious sort of third space you know not the shtetl not the synagogue but an urban space of kind of community connection and creation so a lot of what I read in this particular book inspired me and I think inspired us as we were beginning to develop what this album was going to be. That is so cool because one of the things that I was thinking as both of you were talking was, oh yeah, I used to go to cafes and be inspired by all the people who were around and, and you know, sit and do my work on my laptop, but then you run into somebody and all that Kind of thing i don't do that anymore the cafe you know the coffee shops i buy coffee from people do seem to still do that because they're always packed but you know it, it also made me think about one of the questions that i had thinking about this cafe culture or how you put together this album because i have a lot of i want to hear a lot about that from deep into the detail into the weeds of specific arrangements or even pieces but the first thing is it sounds like that there was this sort of you know i was thinking about it from like a top-down perspective do you have like you had this cafe this cosmopolitan idea coming in or did you just have a bunch of pieces or is it somewhere in between but that my first question was like oh how much of this comes from your experience as like people engaging with and investigating yiddish culture and yiddish history jewish history and how much of it is like just sort of your own gestalt full life aesthetics i think those are to me those are the same thing right like i'd like to think our my, gestalts are actually doing what the first thing is that you're saying no, totally, <laughs> totally. Say, yeah 
I think for, I'll speak for myself, but I think I probably speak for both of us when, yeah, like that, you know, looking at Yiddish culture and, you know, the, the history, the, you know, of course the music and, and you know, not to mention the, the, the much broader cultural context, you know, is a, is a huge part of what both of us do and a, a huge part of our, you know, artistic aesthetic. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, of course that's what, what, what comes through here now. I think, you know, what both of us are, you know, or again, I'll speak for myself, but hopefully it's for both of us that, you know, that's not the totality of, of who we are or what we do or what we listen to or, you know, what we produce. And I think we have tried hard to not like pigeonhole ourselves in that, in that way and not produce, you know, a classic Yiddish album or, you know, some, something in like the album as it would have been in, in 1910, but, you know, trying to incorporate what our artistic influences are today, you know, with some modification, maybe I'll say, you know, a big part of the project is thinking about the evolution of Yiddish music as it essentially sad to say this, but as it would have happened, but didn't, you know, get the opportunity of to course. happen. And there's no like right answer to that. And I'm not saying that we conducted some scientific study of how that would happen, but it's more like a lot of our influences for this album were, you know, listening to artists from, you know, the, the 1960s and seventies and just letting that have whatever influence it might have over us. And in some hopefully natural way, trying to let that all mix together in our, in our heads and in our music and come out and, and turn into this. A lot of those, you know, a lot of artists we were looking at happened to be Jewish also. So these are, you know, our, our top favorites are the, the French chanson singer Barbara and uh, Serge Gainsbourg. Of course, amazing, amazing singers and artists, also Jewish, which, you know, for sure had an influence on their on their style. If we listen, go back and listen to sort of the, the way that they sing, the, sort of their diction and, and the way they flow the words together, you know, they're, they're singing mostly in French, but you could easily imagine, well, we quite literally did that, you know, what, what that would look like in Yiddish. Right. I also think that we were um, inspired by sort of what I like to think of as urban forms of music. So specifically art music, like music for the concert hall, cafe concert music, so music for like cabarets or um, in a cafe setting, specifically music that was oriented with aspects of, of a cosmopolitan life. And it did require some imagination on our parts because I think for a lot of music in Yiddish, oftentimes the primary informant is music of, of the shtetl or folk music. And while I think there are some nods to folk music in the album, we specifically were looking to work in genres that were a little bit more cosmopolitan, a little bit more perhaps sophisticated in their performance. Not to say that folk music is not sophisticated, because let me tell you, as a <laughs> yeah. as a long as a longtime student of Ethel Rame, there are some things that folk music does that I can't even really begin to, you know, approximate. So this is not a claim that folk music is simple and art music is hard, not by a long shot. But just uh, basically want to explore Yiddish through sort of urban genres. And especially sort of first half of the 20th century urban genres. So we have a little bit of the avant-garde in there. We have a little bit of cabaret. We have a little bit of the concert hall. 
Um, we have a little bit of the salon, just all of these sort of spaces. And these are spaces in which Jews and Yiddish-speaking Jews like took part in and contributed to and created for themselves. And what we wanted to do was sort of imagine what that would sound like through our own creativity and music making. I think, you, first of all, I think that you're both extremely successful at making all that come through the music. It's very clear to me that it is not a folk music album in that sense of relating to these different forms, sort of recalling you or calling you into certain spaces. I actually, Anthony, I love the idea of a cafe concert as opposed to my life where it's either a concert hall or like a bar or like a basement show. I was like, there's a missing space right there because you know, I actually but those are urban genres too. What you've yeah, just yeah. listed, they right? certainly are. They certainly are. <laughs> oh my God, the basement Yiddish show. Well, I think we kind of we've all dabbled in that in our various ways. But yeah, no, it's really interesting. And the there's a couple things that pop out to me. First of all, majority of the album is original compositions and arrangements. I mean, I think they're all original arrangements. All but one. All but one original composition and. The, the remaining one is an arrangement. Right. So. And most of them are by the two of you, right? And the, like the yeah. vast yes. majority of those. And that, first of all, that is to me a really interesting and awesome, something that I'm seeing a lot of in people's work in the Klezmer and Yiddish world, which is like, yay, that's a big milestone that we're all reaching. So that's really cool. And then the other thing is that, like, like I said, those tracks are definitely super oriented towards the sense of art music, the sense of the, even the way that you use your voice, certainly the arrangements are really strong at sort of calling you to a time and place energy. If you sort of have some of the background in it, that's really different than, you know, a folk singer, a folk song backed up by a raucous klezmer band. And it's funny that you said about like the cosmopolitan thing, because I was thinking about how, for the most part, you know, the idea of klezmer music, you know, coming from where I'm coming from as the instrumentalist guy, we don't have that kind of cafe culture part of our cosmopolitan music history, whereas Yiddish song and Yiddish as a language has much more of that than at least the way that we've presented our klezmer stuff. So that's something that just really pops out to me. But I was also thinking about like, where do you get all these great texts that you found? And how did you go about choosing slash composing to them or, you know, I'm sure it's many different ways, but what are some of the ways that that happened? So there's a great story sort of attached to at least my initial experience of, of the poetry that we ended up compiling for this album, which is that in 2016, 2017, I was a Wallace Annenberg Helix Fellowship Fellow. There's a fellowship that's based out of an organization called Yiddishkeit that's based in L.A., and it involved a year's worth of comprehensive study of the lives and languages and cultures of Jewish Eastern and Central Europe and its co-territorial peoples. So it was, we basically spent a year studying this history, this culture, these languages. And then at the end of the year, we went to Belarus and to Poland in 2017 and a really important part of this trip and an important part of acquiring a sense of the Yiddish culture that was created in these places was by getting to know the poetry. So I was introduced to all of these amazing poets and I wasn't just introduced to them, but like 
we went to the places where they lived. We went to the towns where they grew up. We went to the cities where, where they worked. So I went to Babroisk in Belarus, and that's where Celia Dropkin is from. And we had an impromptu poetry reading in front of her gymnasium, in front of her high school, basically. And it was my first time really hearing Celia Dropkin. So we were in front of this old high school, which is still a high school, actually. And we were reading his poems, and these poems were like super, super sexy. I was like, wow. (laughs) (laughs) What is going on here? (laughs) I was like, should we be reading this in front of this Belarusian high school? Like, (laughs) are they going to take us away? Yeah, Um, those things are hot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was sort of the experience that initially turned me on to, to Celia Dropkin. And then we were in Grodno, which is right on the uh, Belarusian and Polish border. And that was the town in which Leibnidus basically lived and wrote some of his first poems. We were actually on Leibnidus Street. So we were standing in front of like the, the building where he had an apartment and where he wrote and published some of his first works. And... Again, we had this wonderful sort of impromptu poetry reading in, in front of the space where, where he lived. And I came back from that trip totally sort of infused with the, the poetry and really kind of the beautiful and very sensual modernism of, of these poets. And literally, it was funny, I was looking at the, the sound file of the very first, you know, sort of like flowering, I guess, <laughs> of this trip, which was a, a setting of, of Circus Dama by uh, Celia Dropkin. So like my very first draft of that, and it was literally like a week and a half to two weeks after I got back from the trip. Like I just sat down and was like, okay, well, I, I loved these poems and I'm still very much inspired by all the experiences that I have. I'm 99% sure that there was literally a pot of borscht that was cooking on my stove while I was doing this. Like, I was so besotted with everything that I experienced when I was in Belarus and Poland that it's like, I I didn't want to let it go. And one of the ways in which I stayed connected to that was by uh, starting to to write some of these songs. And Dimitri got in on it. It was amazing. (laughs) Like, I sent him, you know, my first little pass at at Circus Dama. And we went back and forth, and and now it's the first track on our album. That's kind of how it started. Ich bin noch Zirkusdame und tanz zwischen den Schalen. Was seinen noch vergessen hat an der Arena mit die Schmitzenarei. Mein Boysam lechter Guf, mein Boysam deut von Fahren. What was amazing was like sharing this poetry with Dimitri and then Demi- and then watching it sort of act on Dimitri as well and like what his particular takes on it. One of the first songs that he wrote was In Hamak, which is this kind of beautiful and in a sense almost psychedelic vision of this poem by Celia Dropkin and I mean you know the rest is sort of history we've just been writing and writing and writing ever since
interesting process because you know when I sat down and I started plunking out my first go at Circus Dama I didn't necessarily anticipate that this was something that we would take on and then be performing all over the place and then eventually record and then have like a version of you know it was just kind of this thing that I was trying out but I was really lucky and I remain really lucky to have somebody of great talent and vision like Dimitri to be able to explore this poetry and this culture with that's awesome. I'll say that the Circus Dama was one of the ones where the question that I had about your connection and motivation and your relationship to the song and sort of your place in, in singing this song was totally answered by the little dialogue in the album. And so people are going to have to uh, buy the album so they can read that. But I will say that as soon as I read what you had written down or had, you know, described, I was like, yeah, that's exactly what it sounds like. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Yeah, it's exactly what it sounds like. So that's one of the things that's so cool about this record is that if you get it, you actually get a chance to go inside in sort of a deep way with these songs. And it's great because, you know, translation is an act of creation. So reading the translations that you have, I'm sure you know, are related to, like, it's all very much serves this big idea. And it sounds like the big idea and the small ideas all kind of came together at the same time. Yeah, I would, I can say that it, 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 it happened over time. You know, we started with setting one, one poem, you know, into one song here and, and another one there and just sort of falling in love with that process. And it's, at first it was just like one, one song after the next and then after we had sort of a couple built up, you know, we were trying to, in some sense, understand our own work or put our own work in context. And that's where this sort of cafe idea came came to be, where we were trying to figure out, like, okay, well, why do these songs make sense? What is it about them? And, uh, you know, then that, of course, that idea itself turned into other songs. And there's a whole pile of other poetry that we had worked on and other song sketches that... Either some of them were all, were there, or, you know, are almost there, but didn't quite fit the the motif. But you know, that'll be the the next the next one, or maybe it's a poem that we really loved, but we didn't find a way to like make it make sense in this context, or something like that. So you know, it's just it was one foot after the next, and we didn't you know we started writing these songs 2017, I want to say. So it's been a process, you know, and we for a lot of these songs we were lucky enough to be able to write them and to perform them multiple times before then going to record them. And so we've kind of felt like we had the opportunity to try a bunch of things out and see what felt good and what worked for us before, you know, committing it to immortality. Right. Yeah. And sort of giving it away is when you make a record, you sort of, you sort of take it out of your own hands in some way. Exactly. And that's cool. That was wondering whether you had gotten to work this stuff out in performance as well, because it seems like, it seems like the style is so set and the connection between, like I said, the big ideas and the small and, and the individual ideas of each piece kind of is so together. I actually did have a question about whether you think of like the sound of this record as is it this is it the sound of this record or is this more like the style of the of Zwei Breeder? Like, is this 
Is this sort of where you found yourself going? Obviously, you can change your minds at any time. Just sort of like, you know. Yeah, I don't want to commit to it, you know? Yeah, yeah. We have <laughs> I think it's the sound of this record. And, of course, everything we do will sound like, you know, Dimitri and Anthony. But uh, I think there's – we have a lot more left to mine and a lot of different stuff still that, that we have to explore. And so – the next one will sound nothing like this. There you go. I'll say. That's great. <laughs> Who knows? And, you know, it's you say you are always Dimitri and Anthony, Anthony and Dimitri, and then you have all these great collaborators that are, I would say, seem to mostly be centered around the Bay Area, right? But, I mean, you have the best collaborators because you got Varetsky Pass. And everybody else sounds great. Everybody sounds great on the record, but, you know, my heart, that band has been really important to me. And just their contributions on this record are just, they're awesome. I think in many ways they're like an influence on this album because I think yeah. like us having a very strong sense of their artistry allowed us to really dream bigger as far as like creating the world of these songs. used to live in the Bay Area, so yeah, there's definitely a reason why we, we are so sort of Vretsky Pass focused, I guess, in a sense. It's because like being in community with them has really, in many ways, like influenced a lot of my work. I mean, my first album was recorded with them, um, Convergence. But like I hear them in the back of my head like all the time. Like their interpretation of the Jewish music of Eastern Central Europe is the one with which I am the most familiar. They are almost, for me, like a primary informant as far as the nature of, of klezmer music is concerned. And oftentimes when I have conversations with, with other people about klezmer who aren't necessarily insiders, I will direct them towards Rescue Pass because to me, in many ways, the sound that they have managed to develop is one of the most interesting and rich and has a very unusual sort of conversation with modernity. Josh is brilliant. Sometimes I find him frighteningly so. Cookie is wildly talented. Stu, I mean, Stu is Stu. Like, we can have a a whole other (laughs) podcast talking about Stu. So, like, having the chance and I should really say the honor to be able to bring our music to them and then allow them to interpret it in the way that they they do was just a real sort of there were things about our music that we didn't really know that suddenly came to fore when we allowed them to interpret it back to us so first of all I'm sure if if they hear this and uh they won't be happy when when you say that they're a primary source informant for <laughs> yeah, they have Klezmer, to music in Eastern Europe, but yeah, I'm saying my, sorry. I'm saying mine. I'm saying like my sorry, experience. Guys, that's that is what it is. I'm saying uh, that's my experience. I'm just saying that's my experience. Like if they're I'm gonna saying, play that great. They have to deal with it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, but also what I was gonna say is, you know, they have, you know, of course, talent in not just in that style, but in, in so many different styles. And I think that that is something you know that we're lucky to have had, you know, the opportunity for them to contribute that to the project. I also just will put my plug for my connection with them, which is that my first accordion I got for my bar mitzvah from my family. I started, I t- took some lessons and, and was really enjoying it. 
And then when I was 15, so I guess two years later, Josh moved to Berkeley where I grew up. And so I started taking lessons with Josh, like when I was in high school and, you know, many people would travel to, you know, some klezmer camp to take a lesson with Josh. And for me, it was like Tuesday after school every week. Um, And so I feel just so incredibly lucky to have had that, that opportunity and that resource throughout my, you know, formative years as a musician. And, and so I also felt like, you know, because that was such a, an influence that shaped me and I wanted to uh, showcase that on our album. And like I said, you know, bring all the, you know, not just the, the shtetl sound, but also the, the, the mo- sounds of modernity that they have into our album. The very, the very first time I ever saw them perform live actually was sort of my debut year as a performer of Yiddish. Um, I had attended Klez Canada in the summer of 2012, and the Ashkenaz Festival decided to take a, a chance on a generally unknown prospect, that being me. They gave me like an entire concert to sing there. So I was at the Ashkenaz Festival immediately after Klez Canada in 2012, and I went to a, con- just by chance, I happened to go to a concert of theirs, and I was so moved by what I heard and so moved by their playing and so kind of engaged and really interested in their approach to Jewish music of Eastern and Central Europe that I like, I went up and had a total fanboy moment, and I said, oh my God, who are you people? Like, where are you from? <laughs> like, I want to hear you again. And Cookie was like, oh, isn't that sweet? Um <laughs> <laughs> where are you from? Where are you yeah. from? And I said, "Oh, I'm from New York, but I'm moving to I'm moving to Oakland next week." And she said, "We live in Berkeley." And like that was it. <laughs> that was, that's beautiful. And it's also great cuz you know, I I knew them. I met them and played a lot with those folks, well, at least when Josh and Cookie were on the East Coast and I know that like they're really good at creating their own projects and keeping them going, but I'm glad they've had some really fun people to collaborate to out there too. Oh my God. Okay. So I was just thinking about this one part of the record. It's actually thinking about Celia Dropkin and how I think that her energy and some level frames the record. Cause you get started with her at a pretty big chunk and that there was this one thing that happened it was something you say in the uh, in the dialogue about track two, and I wish I had the lyrics up for it right now, but you said, Anthony, you said she drops the poetic language real fast at the end of that poem. And it just, it hit me really hard because, particularly because I had worked on this Gebirtig project a long time ago with uh, Benji Fox Rose. Yeah, yeah. And that was such what I felt with those pe- so many of those pieces where it's like you have like and some other poetry that I've worked with uh, this Parrot's Markish poem that I worked with where it's like 80% of the poem from sort of like my like middle school high school college poetry classes makes sense because it's like narratively similar and then like the last 20% just like drops some either goes in a completely different direction or like drops some new stuff on you really hard and you're like, I always sends me reeling, especially with the Gebirtig stuff, but also with that poem for that song. And I was just like, I don't know, is, is that like a Yiddish poem, th- poetry thing? It, or is that just like these writers and where they're from and what they were thinking about? Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that totally makes sense, especially in the context of Weisvieder Schnee. Yeah, because she spends like the first two um, stanzas, you know, 
very poetically depicting this handsome and beautiful young man until the last stanza where you find out he's, you know, there's aspects of him that are not so poetic and not so beautiful. He has, he has a really long nose. Eh. Uh, <laughs> and, and he's probably going to go off and fall in love with some conventionally beautiful woman and, and make that woman his wife. And all of a sudden the the mind and I dare say the heart that created all these poetic images has to suddenly think about, okay, well, where does that leave me? That leaves me standing here completely alone. You know, as as the poem says, letting the the grass grow over me, which is such like, oh my God. I mean, in a couple of ways. I mean, one, there's like, okay, maybe the speaker of the poem is standing so still, you know, in their solitude that grass is growing over them, or they're dead. (laughs) and grass is literally growing over their grave which is also very poetic i mean like you know let's not get it twisted that's still a very poetic image but it's like you know all of a sudden it's like you know reality check like he's not that into you (laughs) unfortunately the you is me so like how am i gonna deal with that yeah it's just it's there's a reality check in these poems because i always think of like you know a poem it's like one beautiful place you know it's like the, the like the rest of it feels like a classic poem where you'd have like sort of oh we're gonna keep this sort of vibe going for the end and they're like no we're gonna we're gonna drop it into the real you know we're gonna drop some other stuff on you right at the end we're not gonna let th- it go and i think those poems like that are hard in an interesting way to set because yes. how do you make it sound right do you make it sound hap- like happy or angry and the answer is it has to be both and you have to find some way to beautifully incorporate those things. And yeah, that's the challenge and the joy of it. Right. You include sort of an energy of the whole poem, knowing where it's going, yeah. you know, even earlier on in the setting or whatever. I mean, to a certain extent, I like to think of Yiddish poets as kosher slaughterers, right? First there's the bracha, there's the blessing that you have to make, and then there's the slaughter. Amen v'amen. That's right. I'll take it. First you get one, and then there's the other. <laughs> I know. Oh, man. I, I, there, God. Yeah, some of the stuff on that Benji set, I was like, no, no, come on. I was having a good time, you know? <laughs> and then you have to bring it there. Oh, my God. It's really something. I mean, in some ways, I mean, I imagine it's in miniature. It's a depiction of, like, Eastern European Jewish existence. I mean, you are having a good time, and then something happens. I mean... Reality intrudes, you know, all of a sudden your world is sort of broken apart. You know, the thing that I think we really wanted to do with this album was show that Yiddish's language holds many different kinds of existences, including contemporary ones that we would be very familiar with. And I think the our particular selection of poetry did a pretty good job of sort of depicting moments in a life that should be in, in, intelligible to, to anybody who has, you know, been alive for the past 50 years. <laughs> Well, and shout out to those poets right. know, for making very relatable, approachable you know, material. Right, right. Yeah, absolutely. They were tapped into 
both the specific and the universal sides of it all, you know? Yeah, so now you have this album out and maybe there's the chance that live performances can be booked and then even performed. Where are things now for you as a project? What are some successes that you really want to build on? What are some new areas that you're really excited to jump into? Anything that you really want to fetch about? <laughs> we just had a performance last month in the Atlanta area. And it was interesting for me. This is, this is just my experience. And of course, Dimitri, you can break in and tell me if, if it was different for you. But in many ways, it felt like one of the best performances that I'd ever given because we've spent so much time living inside of these words and living inside of this music that it suddenly occurred to me that like I can actually I can actually do that as I'm performing it I don't have to think about it anymore we've already done all of this work now I can just go out there and I can be each person in each song and fully embody that and it was interesting hearing from my husband how different he sort of found my performance that we did last month in comparison to some of my very earliest performances where I was very sort of physically locked up and very sort of nervous about my ability to embody uh, whatever it is that, that I happen to be singing and a part of my ability to access this music and access these texts and access these people of course, is working with Dimitri. Dimitri totally, his playing and his interpretations allow me to become myself and to become all of these different people as a performer. And there's just something about that performance that, that somehow it all managed to click together. And it was very exciting for me, and it made me excited for our, our next opportunities that we're going to have in the coming year performing this music and that isn't to say that I haven't always been to a certain degree excited about the music that I've been performing but I think my relationship to the music has changed my relationship to the music that that I perform has changed in in the beginning I was performing a lot of straightforward classically oriented Yiddish art song Yiddish Kunstlieder you know so it was like I felt a very strong obligation to be able to get it right mm -hmm. and yeah. to do right by the composers and do right by the poets and do right by the culture and the language and it felt like there were all of these people who were looking at me expecting me to do that and who would write me you know short little pithy emails when I didn't um, <laughs> I know what you mean. I know. so you know there's this, there's this unusual kind of freedom that creating one's own music and getting out and actively interpreting it gives one. And what's interesting is that I think all of that stuff that Spilkes and Mishigas and other lovely and pithy Yiddish words that I could use that I got from being a performer of Kunstlieder, there's streams of that in this music that we've created. So there's this weird sort of continuity. I don't know, like, Dimitri, do you think there's a continuity between the klezmer that you play otherwise and the music that, that we managed to create for this album? Of course. I mean, yeah, it's obviously it's not the same, but it's there's some, some real influence there. Yeah, I think, let's say I have a lot of things to say, but to me the most literal embodiment of what you were saying, Anthony, is that 
at a performance we had last summer, we did like a small tour with the album with the other musicians, Bamela, are Matthew Stein and Misha Haliklov. I want to give a, a huge shout out to, you know, I think they really... Yeah, really created the sonic world of the yeah, album. And I would say, you know, just big inspiration. But we, we'll talk about that in a second, maybe. We, we had this performance in here in Berkeley, and at the beginning, another musician we know was sort of heckling us in a minor way. Anthony was sort of giving a little preface to the concert, and, and he was sort of piping up and, you know, basically heckling it. And he did that once, and then after the first song, he sort of did it again. And then I could just see on his face, like, this, like, moment that was like, oh, shit, this is, like, this is real. Like, this, they have something serious to to, to, to show. You know, this isn't, like, you know, a funny concert that I can give my funny remarks, and this is, like, this is serious music. To me, that was one of the <laughs> most delightful moments of, of performing this stuff, is just seeing the transformation on somebody's face, like, realizing the the impact that we have, or, you know, I would say maybe that's tooting my own heart, but just like the, the seriousness with which we, we take this project. I will say also, just to bring it to a fetch for a moment, since, since you were asking oh, for yeah. that, those two guys, Matthew and Misha, are super important to this project, to the sound of, of this project. And it's been a real challenge to, you know, it's hard enough to get to find performance venues that'll pay for travel for two people, since we live on opposite coast, to find travel for, for four people is, you know, very difficult, if not impossible. And so I would love to to perform it as a, as a larger group more. And we haven't gotten, you know, as much of an opportunity to do that. And unfortunately, you know, my further ideas that I have for what's next only involve even more musicians. So I'm not, not sure how to reconcile that. Ambition and business often uh, are, are at odds in this business. Yeah. It's, very, <laughs> it's very hard, you know. Oftentimes people want a beautiful aquarium but they don't want to pay for the tank, they don't want to pay for the fish, and they don't want to pay for the water. And it's like, right. so what do you want? <laughs> I can relate to that really strongly. And and it's interesting, is like what you said about that story, Dimitri, because the other thing that occurred to me about what that person might have been realizing is that you're carving out and you're working in a really different space of this whole Yiddish world than, you know, the classic... Yiddish theater songs or the classic nostalgic folk songs that were certainly some of the stuff that I was first introduced to when it comes to Yiddish song, you know, and there was always, you know, like I said, all props to Ethel Rehm and her mastery and, you know, all the people who sang this stuff or, you know, Judy Bressler singing Romania, Romania with the Klezmer Conservatory Band, because that will kick your ass. But this is like, you know, you not only have you found your own voice in this music, you also are like, like mining a different territory and i was thinking about like what's it what's it been like trying to promote i mean you yeah we all know that booking performances is hard money is a super hard logistics and anthony you're i would say you're someone who i look to as someone who knows how to navigate some of the internet stuff i mean i, I would like to say formerly i have now um i have stepped away from the internet good for you <laughs> I prize, I prize whatever brain cells I happen to have left, and I'm not willing to, to post them, unfortunately. Not anymore. That's really, really a good thing, I think. <laughs> but, like, it's one thing to try to promote this stuff inside of our Yiddish bubble, inside of our Klezmer world or Yiddish land or whatever you want to talk about it. But there's also the entire world of 
Jewish performance or the Jewish world outside of that. And then there's the entire world of music and all of that. And like, I don't know, what's it been like for you being, a, you know, a Yiddish cosmopolitan art songy oriented group trying to find your place in the music business? And what are your like, again, successes, complaints, maybe some hopes and dreams, whatever. Really quickly, I want to identify the fact that some of the people that you've you've listed, so Ethel Rain and Judy Bressler, these are like, these are people who have inspired my my vocalizations in the Yiddish language. Yeah. I've had the opportunity to work with them. So what's interesting is that even though they work in in adjacent or different genres than the ones that I perform in the most often. There's parts of them in what I'm doing. I learn from having worked from them. It's it's strange, like, when, when, you know, sometimes we get a reaction that what we're doing is so different because, like, if you sit down and you listen to, you know, like, I, I would think of this almost as, like, the Bible for modern Yiddish song, you know, Adrian Cooper's Dreaming in Yiddish. Yeah. That is comprehensively uh, arranged... Yiddish song performed at least accessing classical, you know, vocalization. And this is like one of the most important, you know, contemporary albums of Yiddish song. So it's not like I, I you know, that we sort of like made up, <laughs> you know, these sorts of, of aspects of, of performing, you know, music in Yiddish, like they existed, they existed there. And like, we're, we're lucky to have that as an, as an inspiration. You know, my own story in relationship to Adrian is, is really sort of sad. I saw Adrian Cooper perform in probably about a year and a half to, to two years before she died, and I did not know who she was. I saw her at a performance at the JCC in Manhattan, and it was a concert uh, of songs about sickness. It was called Krankheit. <laughs> it was a very strange um, sort of, uh, let's say, a theme to create a concert around, but it seemed interesting to me and my husband at the time, so we went to go see it, and I didn't know that I was seeing a legend. And about a year and a half to two years later, I decided I wanted to become a singer in, in Yiddish. So I sat down and I started started writing to, to Adrian Cooper. And basically, like, she was dying as I yeah. was writing her. And I had no idea. Oh. So I never had a chance to really connect with her as as a Yiddish performer. And to be quite honest, that's a loss that I feel in my own attempts to, to be a performer of Yiddish, but I've been really, really lucky to have had the ability to work with people who work very closely with her, and all of those streams of music and artistry, I like to think, have influenced my own work. So, I just wanted to, just wanted to, little sidebar. Yeah, thank you for that. <laughs> that, like, you know, like, when Judy comes and sees us perform, Judy has, like, uh, Judy Bressler has amazing things to say, and then she has songs to share. I know, I, I, Judy is like such a great person, and she's the, she's like the the um, first person I ever met who had a real like Boston accent. I didn't really know what that was, and then I met Judy <laughs> Bressler, and I was like, wow. And it turns out Judy Bressler was my future because eventually we ended up moving to Boston, and I heard that accent a lot. All the time. <laughs> 
But like, I don't know, Dimitri, like what are some of the challenges with kind of trying to pull this off? Yeah, I mean, to your question, sort of like, where do we fit in? That's something we talk about all the time. I think it's equally important to making the music itself is like, what context does this make sense in? And, you know, some of it, I would say even most of that discussion, it tends to be aspirational. What's, what context do we wish this music fit in? But, you know, we put in whatever effort we can to make that a reality. And so I think the thing I'll start with is, you know, if this music only reaches, you know, the, the klezmer world, like, I think we failed, period. You know, this music has to be, you know, more broadly applicable and more, yeah, just have, have a broader reach. You know, if this is only something that's interesting or relevant to people who are super familiar with the musical idioms that, that we, uh, you know, are, are coming from, like, that's, you know, it's boring, right? You know, it's 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 just in, too intellectual. And so, you know, I try and push us really hard to make something that is, like, as accessible as, as possible. And, you know, obviously there are certain fundamental limitations. Like, if you're singing in Yiddish, some people are just not going to, you know, not going to know what to do with it. But even then, you know, we make a huge effort at the con- you know, at our concerts, for example, we'll read translations before every song. Anthony is, does a, a wonderful job of trying to act out, you know, what's going on. And then, you know, when we play them, the songs for people who don't understand or don't speak the language, the universal response I've gotten is like, oh, you didn't need to read me the translation. I understood from the music, you know, what you were, what you were trying to say, which is you know, really lovely to hear. I think that we've in some way, you know, accomplished that goal of, of making it accessible to those who, uh, you know, are not super well steeped in the language or the musical idioms or any of that. Now, like, how do we take that further and like perform for those audiences, you know, more and more is still a challenge and something we're trying to, to figure out. I mean, what's been really gratifying as we've gone through the process of performing this music in various places are people who come up and really want to talk about the poetry. That's always like crazy to me because even as, I guess, a performer of poetry, even I find it a little heady sometimes. So the fact that somebody's going to come at the end of our concert and be like, I really want to discuss this poem with you is like amazing because that's exactly the experience we want people to have is that isn't this, this poetry is amazing and it is a moment and it's great that we're able to have that moment together. You know, we're able to create a space for us to kind of look at not only this poetry, but the, the moments, the, the contemporary moments that it represented and that it continues to represent. Yeah, I agree. Because it reminds me of what you were saying before about how, you know, these poems are not necessarily that new, but that there's a way, there's like a specific way. Well, I mean, I guess every poet, but the specific way in which Yiddish poetry or these Yiddish poets reach from their talking about their own experiences and what they're writing. And then you can see yourself in them or you find your way through those and or or whatever it impacts the present you're like wait are they you know the wait are they talking about 2019 or 24 you know or 1941 or whatever you know it's like you feel it so strongly and i think it's it's interesting for me because dimitri i was thinking about like i wonder i i can't figure out what the rubric of success for my own like klezmer music in terms of where it lands or where it doesn't land. I just, it's so hard. I just keep doing it. I'm lucky. There's such a critical mass of Jews where I live that 
it's like the weddings can be powerful if you get the right people or the concert can be powerful or for me it's like i get to do this community band stuff which is really powerful for our own community and is really interesting and philadelphia especially west philadelphia is a wild laboratory of cutting edge jewish music in a bunch of different directions right now so that's kind of weird but i was thinking about like I have to be myself. I can't change who I am to fit your situation anymore. Whether I was ever good at it or not, I at least used to think that was a goal. And it's like, well, what do we get that feels unique or at least uniquely ours about either the process by which we learn about poetry or music or sound? I know for me, the process of having learned klezmer music through old recordings and then the way that we kind of work that out in real time at these festivals is a super unique experience compared to the way other people learn music. So that's like an example. So I'm always trying to draw out that kind of stuff, like draw out stuff from those experiences and then apply them to like, let's say I have to ex work with other kinds of music or, or other kinds of things. And it, it works. I think it's been really interesting, but it's a struggle. I think like Anthony, what you said about the aquarium is like, the pigeonholing of Yiddish and Yiddish culture grates on me pretty strongly a lot of the time these days. I mean, in a way, maybe all we can do is make work like what you're making that just says, actually, there's a whole lot more here if you're willing to listen. And I think that's like what I try to do too, but it can be really challenging. My thought about this, just yeah, I spent a long time thinking about this and like what I basically come to is Yes, there is a lot more here if you're willing to listen, but that if you're willing to listen is like the most important caveat, right? Because it's very easy to fall into the trap of like thinking, wow, our music is so good, everybody should should listen to this. But it's, ultimately that's just, it's selfish, right? It's like, well, I know better than you what you should like, right? And you you need to come to our concert because I said so and I, right? What, the, I don't, so I've like, I've, I've worked through those emotions and ultimately what I've come up with is like, I'm going to make something that sounds great to me, you know, and that's what you're saying, right? Like it has to be for yourself. And like, if I can't find satisfaction out of it, then it's not worth doing. If other people happen to like it also, like that's icing on the cake. It's easy as a performer to derive your primary satisfaction from your audience. But I don't think maybe it's not true, but I don't think that's ever going to be like truly fulfilling because there always is going to be, you know, first of all, you know, it's obviously the, the pigeonholing is like, that's just going to be a challenge. And, you know, maybe we'll, we'll overcome that challenge or maybe we won't, but to like get our own internal feeling of success on that just is pretty much setting us up, setting us up for like sadness uh, and most likely outcomes. So it just, ha it has to be internally satisfying. And then, you know, from that, if, if we feel that satisfaction then we can build on that and, and try and present it to audiences and, uh, you know, do our best. I wonder if there's like any specific, kind of avenues in either the classical or non-classical worlds that you feel like I see it as like this works perfectly so you should do it going all the way back you talked about like these cafe cabaret performances like would you ever try to set up some I mean these are almost like formats that you don't think of easily but maybe there's some space for them i mean i like to think that every time we have a performance of this particular project we're sort of creating a cafe i mean <laughs> yeah, that's cool it's interesting we our, our performance last month at temple beth tikva in roswell georgia there is this very unusual 
sort of setup that the synagogue had, the seats, it was kind of like they were, they were like raked. And between each like seat, between these like little mini pews, there were these lamps. <laughs> there were these, they were like sort of like, sort of art deco-y sort of lamps that were between each set of, of, of pews. And they said that they had wanted it to look like a kollel. They wanted it to look like a study hall, like in a, in a base midrash, right? But what's interesting is that if you look at what a base midrash is, which is like a room in which a bunch of people get together and they have these conversations over Torah, it kind of looks like a cafe. Yeah. yeah, you just throw a couple <laughs> samovars in there, and it's like boom. So it felt like we turned this this sanctuary into a cafe for the moment that we were there. You know, there was one point during um, the the song uh, "Shana from Defroy." Um, there's like this really sort of gorgeous um, instrumental in the middle of that song. I usually. Um, break out of my my uh my confines as a performer and move out into the audience and um try to seduce as many women as i possibly can (laughs) um and and have a little dance with each one before i get back on stage and start singing again (laughs) and um i had the opportunity to do that in this performance you know so it's like I, i like to think that we bring we try to bring the, the spaces that we're trying to create to each of each of our performances. What's really interesting is that um, right right before the pandemic, uh, in the fall of um, 2019, um, actually like the first week of December uh, 2019, I created a culture cabaret in Boston called Cafe Yiddishkeit. And it was very, very, very... It just, it was exciting because there were lots of people who came and there were lots of people who were interested in, in performing. And the idea is that if you did anything that was remotely performative and it, it, it had to do with Jewish culture, that we were going to create a stage for you to do that. Uh, we put together a, a house band that played in between each of the acts. Um, we were all, you know, revved up and ready to, to do the next performance of Cafe Yiddishkeit, which was supposed to be the week after Purim in 2020. And you can imagine how that went, because that's like exactly when everything shut the hell down. Yeah. But I think there's there's the possibility to create these spaces any place where where people get together and, and have connection around performative Jewish culture. And I really want to say performative Jewish culture because um, I'm going to um, perhaps show my hand a little bit. So like, in case you didn't know, I think this is generally, you know, everyone knows this. I'm married to a rabbi. Rabbis love books. Jews love books, right? (laughs) We're people of the book, right? Like there's kind of the idea that like, if you're a Jew and you're doing something professional, you're not really... You're not really successful at that until you've sat down and written a book about it. <laughs> and then that book has been reviewed in, in, in a Jewish publication, right? Oh <laughs> I can't stress enough how much, for me, intrinsic Jewishness and Yiddishkeit is in performative, is in music, is in 
poetry, is in singing, is in dancing. And it's so important for us to create spaces in which these things happen because to me, they are just as important as the giant library of Jewish books that have existed over the past 3,000 years. In some ways, there's a complete continuity between that giant pile of books and, you know, the merest little phrase, you know, that Ethel Rehm will, will sing in a folk song, right? There's a complete aesthetic continuity between those two things. And we have to create spaces for us to be able to experience and perform and appreciate these ways of being Jewish in the world. And it's just, it makes me really, this is a rant. I've, I've arrived at the rant part of this podcast. Um, yes. <laughs> why does the performing arts have such short shrift in Jewish community? It just like, it drives me insane because like in many ways for me, it is the heart, it is the soul of being Jewish is in these things, you know? Some of the most important moments in Jewishness have taken place in the context of something that was performed. So like, why isn't it taken seriously? And yet if I wanted to sit down and I write, you know, a book about something, well, automatically people would be like, oh, well, that's important. Like, it's a yeah, book, yeah. you know? <laughs> That is really the bullseye for me. I just think that there's so much richness. And like you said, one of the things that Jews love to do is go microscopic on really small pieces of information and turn that into an entire world, you know, show how that connects to the entire world of the rest of who we are. You know, I mean, that's the Talmud in an instant, in it, right? And like, hmm. this is who we, this is what we do. And so the Ethel, the Ethel thing that's going, or for all of us, where it's like, no, you got to slow the piece down and it's not, it's this, it's not that. Mm -hmm. And here's the context. Oh, well, if you listen to, you know, listen to how people pronounce Yiddish words, this gives you a sense of how you can approach the rhythm right. and all that stuff. And you're like, it's not just these little pieces of a puzzle that add up to a bigger puzzle. For me, it feels like the whole thing. It's like, D it's more like a DNA thing. It's fractal. Yes. Yes. Yeah. It grows from the whole thing. And speaking of growing from the whole thing, one of the things that I was just imagining was more performance of you with Art Deco, uh, with Art Deco architecture and and accessories, because I was just like, you know, for you all, one of the things that's great about this record is how big, we, especially with that, with the booklet, and then just these other things, it's like how much bigger it is than just like, it's like, you're not just saying listen to our music and we just our music stands on its own terms but you're also saying like here's a bunch of information and see how you relate to it because we want you to just walk in the door to our cafe mm. where we are i was just thinking about how that i think from what i know both of you as artists and the work that you've made that makes so much sense to keep just you know it's like the more and more ways that that can you know i'm, I'm just imagining now it's like oh well there's set pieces but it's actually more like you know here are the drink menu that we recommend for our concert. Totally. Oh no, this I mean, is like I think I think like we created this album on an economy of vibes. <laughs> like, <laughs> like we wanted there to be a vibe, right? And we really had to create for ourselves what that looked like and what that sounded like before we could properly sort of depict it um, sonically. So there are somewhere in the secret stashes here some mood boards and images and 
all that stuff that that inspired the music just as well. Totally. That's awesome. That's awesome. I got to take more on that on. Well, this is really cool. I think that that's sort of, it seems like a, a good place to sort of wrap up. So I'll just say, is there anything else that either of you want to add in that we haven't touched on yet? Do, I mean, Dimitri, should we talk about uh, our, our, our next interest poetically and, and sort of... We've got to let no, we got to leave people. Uh, there, there is something next. There is something next. Yes, there's there's more poetry to come, and uh, there's one particular poet who has inspired our our interest. So there's a possibility that uh, um, you'll be hearing soon some 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 more exploration of this particular poet's work. Yeah. Well, that's exciting. I'm just so glad that you're able to perform together. That you've made this such a rich and like creative project and that you're writing your music. So thank you so much for talking and this was a blast. Thank you so much for having us. This has been great. Yeah, thank you so much. It's really a pleasure to talk to somebody who gets it. <laughs> that was my conversation with Zvei Breeder, who are Anthony Russell and Dimitri Gaskin. I had so much fun talking with these guys. It actually is the first interview that I did since I started again, and it was so great to drop into that vibe and the flow that we get when we're just talking about this music and this world and this culture that we love so much. Anthony and Dimitri are creating some really thoughtful music, and they put so much care into how they create their music, compose, choose texts, and put together the whole package of the album and share their art with the public. It's really cool. To me, they're working in a part of Yiddish music that really has a lot of places left to explore. You should check out what they've already done on their record, Cosmopolitan, out on Borscht Beat Records, and follow them to see what they get up to next. And if you're in Birmingham, Alabama this weekend, they'll be the artist in residence at Temple Bethel, Birmingham. They'll be working with the congregation all weekend long and giving a concert on Saturday, April 22nd. The following week, they'll be at the University of Washington, where Anthony will deliver this year's Samuel and Althea Straum Lecture in Jewish Studies. They'll be performing Tuesday, May 2nd and Thursday, May 4th. Links to register for both of these events will be in the show notes. Once again please go to our Patreon, that's patreon.com slash radiantothers, and support us at whatever level you are able. And we'll be back in two weeks with new episode featuring another conversation with some great folks from our Klezmer world. In the meantime, I'm wishing you all well and good Shabbos. Shabbos.